to Nicosian Cat. Today we have a special guest, retired Ambassador Selim Kuneral. Ambassador Selim Kuneral entered the Turkish Foreign Ministry in 1973 and served in the Turkish Foreign Service for more than 40 years in various posts. The posts he served at the highest level as ambassador include the permanent mission of Turkey to the United Nations in Geneva, the permanent delegation to the European Union, and the permanent representation of Turkey to the World Trade Organization. He was Director General for the European Union in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and later for policy planning and served as ambassador to Sweden and later to Korea. Apart from his high-level duties in the ministry in Ankara, Ambassador Kunerab also served as a chairman in various intergovernmental organizations, such as the Energy Charter Conference, the World Trade Organization Committee on Trade and the Environment, and the Working Party on the Accession of Belarus to the World Trade Organization. Ambassador Kunerab has received Chevalier de la Légion d'Honneur, Medal of France in 2011, And after retiring from active duty, he has been frequently consulted by national and international media as an experienced commentator, while he also writes articles in Turkish in finance and trade on foreign policy issues. We are honored to host uh, such a refined diplomat in our podcast, and, but we feel obligated to remind our li- listeners that Mr. Kuneral will address our discussion topics on his personal capacity and, no- and only, and not on behalf of any country or office he held in the past or present. Welcome, Mr. Kuneral. Thank you, Andrika, and thank you very much for this very nice introduction. Thank you very much for accepting our invitation. Um, our podcast would always like to bring um, different views into our discussions. And Nicosia Ankat focusing mainly on, on Cyprus problem, but n- not only. You know, these days we are actually going through, again, another historical uh, period when it comes to the, the Cyprus problem. But before getting into the details, from your point of view, Uh, what is the priority of Cyprus problem in the regional and, and maybe global politics nowadays, uh, Ambassador Kuneral? Well, I, I would say that as far as the international community in general is concerned, the Cyprus problem doesn't have too much of a priority for the simple reason that um, nobody is getting killed on the island. So there is no urgency for the international community, whether it's the United Nations or anyone else, Uh, to intervene, to restore peace, and so on, because, well, th- there is peace. Uh, there has been peace on the island for uh, more than uh, uh, almost 50 years now, since the, uh, since uh, 1974. Only one or two incidents, I think, have occurred since then. So as, as far as the international community is concerned, it doesn't have very much of a priority. Uh, the countries that, that supply uh, troops to the uh, United Nations Peacekeeping Force, once in a while, express the uh, intention of withdrawing their troops because of they are not really needed anymore. Uh, but that doesn't happen either. So, so the, um, the situation is, is, uh, is basically frozen. It's a frozen conflict, as uh, uh, they called this kind of, of uh, situation. And there are many more urgent problems around the world that require the uh, attention of the uh, United Nations in particular and the international community in general. Ambassador Kuneral, you rightly pointed out that it's a frozen conflict, but it continues to create distress and occasionally crisis in the area because of the different positions when it comes to 
the Cyprus problem. And uh, there are issues of mutual um, and unrecognitions. There are issues of keeping it uh, frozen, but then other issues are building up on that. Nowadays, also, we are talking about the possibility of, or maybe a, a new uh, turning point after what is going to happen in uh, Geneva um, by the end of April. We know that the, the new Turkish position and the new Turkish Cypriot position is now shifted towards a two-state solution, which is not accepted by the other side, but also it is not endorsed by the, the United Nations uh, Security Council resolutions. On the other hand, we now can say that the Greek Cypriot side has the comfort of supporting by communal by zonal federation. Um, there are many uh, circles uh, who have maybe been um, critical about the way things have been developing in the past, but I think now Greek Cypriot side is having this comfort of, of supporting uh, the bicommunal bizonal federation, which is in line with the UN resolutions. So how do you see this will be affecting the upcoming uh, talks? Well, informal talks, I, I should say, because the sides have agreed to come together and then decide if there is a common, to see if there is a common ground or not. Now that there are two very separate positions, how can it be possible to bridge this gap? Will it be possible to bridge it after all? As you have said, you know, right here, these are going to be informal talks. So they are not um, going to be a negotiation as uh, we understand the word to mean. And of course, you know, uh, as, as you said at the beginning, Andromache said at the beginning, I'm not here as a representative of my country and, and I do not therefore have access to uh, information uh, that is not available to the general public. Uh, but what I read in the, in, in the newspapers is that the ob objective of this uh, meeting next week in Geneva is to permit each side to express its views on the on how they see uh, the future. So the Turkish Cypriot side and, and, and Turkey are going to say that you know so much time, so many years have been wasted on uh, the um, on seeking a federal uh, bizonal uh, bicommunal solution that has not worked. Uh, so we should try something else, and and that something else is the uh, mutual recognition of two sovereign states sharing uh, the island between uh, them. So that, that is the line that the Turkish Cypriot and Turkish side are going to take. And Mr. Anastasiades and Greece probably are going to say no. We uh, think that we should make yet another effort at uh, reaching a federal solution. And it is then, I think, as I understand it, that the United Nations Secretary General, probably not of course, on the day uh, as, uh, as such, uh, but he will go away and, and uh, assess uh, the, the situation uh, in the view of uh, the uh, positions expressed by the, uh, the different sides and, um, and then decide whether there is a point in starting yet another effort at uh, seeking a solution. Uh, we were saying earlier that you know the, there is not much urgency, and it is a fact that you know the last time that this effort was made was um, uh, almost four years ago. The, uh, that effort failed, and, and, and then nothing, nothing much, if anything, has happened 
since then. So he will have to decide whether the, uh, there is a point in convening uh, another meeting or not. If he decides that it is worth the trouble, then, then of course, you know, there will be another effort made. If not, uh, then the, the, the frozen conflict uh, will remain you frozen. You know, in, in this podcast, we were often made a clear point that uh, the so-called frozen conflict, which we agree it is a frozen conflict, it still has consequences and de facto developments on the ground. And uh, we've often made, uh, made it clear that our opinion here is that you know, the status quo is, is clearly not sustainable and it keeps evolving and it evolves negatively for both sides, in effect, whether they like it or not. The argument that the Greek Cypriot side is making that they want to start from where they left off in Gran Montana is clearly not going to happen. And uh, in Cramontana, we had seen something else. In Cramontana, we had seen the direct uh, participation of the European Union in all the process. Now, it seems that the role of the European Union, at least in this informal conference, will be downgraded. We found out yesterday, according to press reports, that uh, the European Union will be represented only at a low level and uh, it will not be allowed to take part in the plenary. So. What is your view of the role of the European Union and what do you believe that the EU needs to do in order to play a constructive role in the talks, especially having seen the four-year hiatus and what happened during the Grand Montana conference? I would say that you know, um, the European Union has a, a very limited role to play in this uh, negotiation because if you want to be um, an honest broker you have to be uh, you have to treat the two sides equally like the united nations for instance uh, treats the two sides uh, equally you know when uh, a meeting is held under the auspices of the united nations whether it's in nicosia new york geneva whatever Montana, and and so on and, and uh, there are so many more places that i could name where meetings have been held uh, under the United Nations uh, auspices, the two sides are treated equally. You, know, you have the, the Greek Cypriot president is there as uh, the head of his or the leader of his community. The Turkish Cypriot president is also there as head of his community and uh, they are treated equally. The uh, European Union does not treat the two sides equally. It starts from the premise that the only uh, representative uh, of the island is the president of Cyprus, Mr. Anastasiades, and uh, frankly, I don't know what uh, title they give to the uh, Turkish Cypriot president when he visits Brussels or is seen. But I, I look at the at the, uh, the protocol, for instance, you know, to the uh, treaty on the accession of Cyprus to the uh, European Union, and it speaks of uh, the area. I don't have the text for me. The areas know. which are not under the effective control of the government of Republic of Cyprus, a long one. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That is not, you know, what I would call sort of equal treatment. And if you want to play a role, you know, uh, in a negotiation like this, you have to treat the two sides uh, equally. And, and the, the European Union simply you know, cannot do it because it would have to go back you know, on the Treaty of Accession uh, of Cyprus to the European Union uh, date from 2003. And, and uh, that is not possible. Uh, so the... Uh, I would say that the, the least role uh, that the European Union plays uh, in this negotiation in Geneva next week 
the better. One of the arguments, uh, Ambassador Kunerab, um, regarding the Cyprus problems, new evolution at the moment, is the fact that there are Security Council resolutions which rule out a two-state solution. Um, of course, in diplomacy, you need to come up with creative ways to handle uh, problems which you couldn't solve somehow. But there is simply a very clear picture that the Greek Cypriot side would probably not be accepting a two-state solution because they are even accused of um, not accepting the equality of the Turkish Cypriot. So if this is the picture, how they how are they going to accept the um the the, the two-state solution and not only um in the global perspective nowadays um the, the the organizations like united nations i think are is very careful not to give a not to set a precedence to the other regions in the world and how is it going to be possible for the united nations to let's say accept something other than their security council uh, resolutions and i think we also need to look at it from a little bit of a broader context not only for you know in details of the of the cyprus problem and this is the question that everybody is asking that it doesn't look or sound realistic to to support that position you're right you know um, and it isn't just the united nations look at kosovo for instance you know um, in kosovo uh, there are still five countries uh, inside the you know, European Union uh, which refuse to recognize uh, Kosovo as a, as a separate independent uh, state. And because of that, you know, the European Union has a problem uh, dealing with, with Kosovo. And, and uh, I agree that, that you know, it would be extremely difficult uh, for the United Nations uh, to, to recognize the uh, creation of a separate uh, sovereign entity uh, in, in northern uh, Cyprus. And that is why, you know, I do not think that very much will come out of, of this effort. You know that um, David Haney, who has written a very good, good book on, on, on the Cyprus problem, which I'm sure you both read, uh, he said about 20 years ago that no one has lost money betting against a Cyprus settlement. I would imagine that, you know, very much the same will, will, uh, will happen this time and and uh, the two sides you know uh, will exchange views and and uh, the uh, secretary general of the united nations will say that look you know i, I do not see any basis for uh, another effort at, at uh, uh, negotiation so the status quo will may remain you know uh, i do not think uh, that uh, there is any chance of uh, the uh, this uh, sovereign state uh, formula uh, being accepted by the international community, unless you know Mr. Anastasiades comes with uh, something quite uh, unexpected on his federal uh, solution formula, then the, the uh, something that was not said the last time around, you know, Comontana and so on. After all, he's the one who left the table, as I understand it, claiming elections in. in uh, in Greek Cyprus, and, and uh, so maybe if he comes back and says that you know he's going to accept the Annan plan or something, then there might be a change in the position of of Turkey, you know, uh, and the Turkish Cypriots. Uh, but but I have I see no sign of uh, of that, you know, in in, in the uh, media that I follow. Uh, maybe you have uh, both of you have uh, better information. Uh, about uh, what the uh, what Mr. Anastasiades will come up with, 
I think that the, the two sides you know, are going uh, to Geneva uh, because they are under the pressure of uh, not the uh, international community, uh, which uh, is uh, more or less indifferent, as, as we said, but the European Union uh, realizes that you know, um, this creates um, some minor difficulty and it wants to avoid you know, the kind of situation that arose last year in the Eastern Mediterranean and, and so on. And it wants, I think, to start things with Turkey again. So, so uh, it feels under the obligation to push the two parties to, to go back to the, uh, the table. But as I said, you know, unless something miraculous comes up, I, I do not expect you know, um, very much uh, to emerge uh, from this meeting. Now, one thing that Mr. Anastasiades could do, for instance, you know, Cyprus, uh, the Greek Cyprus has been blocking the um, opening of many chapters in the accession negotiations. And there are lots of chapters or several chapters which are really in the interest of, of, of both sides to open. So he could come and say, look, you know, um, uh, we are, we are um, lifting our veto on uh, the opening of chapters uh, on judicial cooperation, for instance, you know, 23, 24, or energy, chapter 16, and so on. That, that would be a, a remarkable move on, on his part. And, and, and that is where the European Union you know, could play a, a useful role. But I see no sign that you know, he's going to come up with something like that. Because even, and, and after all, you know, from, from, from his perspective, it is a, it is a costless uh, situation, you know, opening three or four chapters. It's not going to change very much. There's something like uh, another 20 uh, which have not been opened. And uh, in fact, other than just one, or no chapters have, have been closed. So that would be a goodwill gesture. Uh, if if uh, people uh, in Greek Cyprus are listening, you know, maybe <laughs> they might draw some conclusion uh, from that because it's, it's, it would be a very impressive gesture and, and would be costless from his perspective, as I said, you know, because the, uh, the negotiation would, any, in any case, not go uh, very far, but, but there would have been action in an area which is in the interests of all parties. You know, judicial cooperation would be good for Turkey, for the European Union, and for Greek Cyprus. And, of course, the negotiation on energy uh, would also help reduce the tension in the uh, uh, eastern Mediterranean. So let's see, you know, we'll, you say that lots of people listen to your podcast, <laughs> so uh, we will see that whether you know, they also take action on what uh, they listen well, to. Well, the issue is, of course, that putting the whole thing in context, the elections are coming in the Republic of Cyprus very soon, in the end of May, and the election time is always a, a period of a hype in uh, nationalism uh, in the Greek Cypriot side, and uh, I don't think that the current situation allows or that uh, Anastasiadis himself is currently in a position to take any brave uh, moves. And we have discussed multiple times in the podcast before about the fact that the government is now at an all-time low when it comes to, to the perception of the public towards it. And this is one other uh, reason why we are not very hopeful about uh, the Geneva conference, aside from everything else that you presented. My question here is, because you, you very rightfully presented um, how the European Union is interested in 
at least pushing the sides because of the Eastern Mediterranean, wanting to re-engage with Turkey. My question is, to what extent is the Cyprus problem a stumbling block for the European Union? And to what extent would the European Union exert pressure on Turkey and on the Republic of Cyprus in bridging the, the issues between the sides. I'm asking this because there were rumors in the Greek Cypriot press that maybe the European Union would uh, suggest to, uh, to Turkey that uh, the customs union would be, the, would be dependent on a Cyprus problem solution, let's say. And I'm wondering to what extent you believe that the European Union would use the chip of Cyprus in its negotiation with, with Turkey, or if it prefers to have it a bit on the side because it causes more problems than it can solve. Well, so far, you know, um, I'm not aware of the um, European Union putting real pressure on uh, Cyprus on, in any of the uh, items that uh, you have mentioned, for instance, you know, the opening of or the, the negotiations on, on deepening the customs union uh, or uh, the, the question of uh, chapters and so on. Uh, the European Union has basically allowed uh, Greek Cyprus to, to block every uh, step that could be taken in the direction of improving or normalizing relations with the uh, European Union. And, and of course, this has raised clearly some, uh, it has caused some uncertainty or embarrassment in the uh, European Union because it sees, the Union sees that Turkey is moving gradually away from European Union values and moving away from Europe towards uh, other partners uh, in the region. And, and this is not something that you know, the European Union of course, at least some member states in the European Union are very happy about. So, so they would like you know, the process to be uh, to restart. But so far, you know, the, uh, the only pressure has been on Turkey to make uh, a step forward uh, towards Cyprus, for instance, on the uh, question of uh, the deepening of the customs union. The uh, uh, European Union has said that you know, this cannot happen until... Turkey opens its borders to uh, Greek Cyprus, and, and we know why you know, this doesn't work. And, and uh, so, you know, there's been nothing there. And uh, the, uh, clearly, you know, the, in, in present circumstances, the uh, European Union is not able uh, to convince Mr. Anastasiades to, to make some move, which would be in his interest also, I think, to... Um, sort of soften the, the atmosphere with, with Turkey. Now, you've mentioned elections. Of course, you know, I've been on and off dealing with the Cyprus problem for throughout my career, so to speak. And, and I cannot remember a time when there was no election coming up, either in Greece or in Turkey or in Greek Cyprus or in Turkey Cyprus. And so people would say, oh, let's wait another few months. You know, uh, there'll be a, there's going to be an election in Greek Cyprus, then you know, that would be over. And, and then you'd, you'd start something. And then people would say, oh, well, there's going to be an election in Turkey Cyprus, uh, or it would be in Greece, or it would be in Turkey, and so on. So elections have been used as an argument for um, doing nothing, you know, for the past uh, uh, easily 40, 50 years. Uh, in fact, the uh, 
That was the argument why Mr. Anasadez left you know, in, in um, Montana four years ago. Uh, I, I hope it, um, I would have hoped that, that uh, uh, the same situation would not arise. But then, of course, as we see, all seem to agree, nothing much is expected from this meeting next week anyway. Elections would not be the, the, the only obstacle to a solution, it seems to me. Whenever there is this Cyprus problem process, let's say, going towards, uh, in, in a more optimistic direction, there is this saying that they say stars are aligned. And regardless of the fact that, you know, all stars have been aligned somehow in the past, unfortunately, we couldn't really come to a point where we finalized the, the problem um, on the island. At this part of our podcast, I really would like to... Um, hear your assessment regarding um, Turkey's uh, role in the region and in the world. There have been a lot of, um, especially recently, I would say a coffee talk uh, about the fact that Turkey is uh, moving towards east or moving towards west or aligning with Russia or now the Biden administration is in power, so Turkey is trying to align itself. And the fact that Turkey have not necessarily been following a, a traditional pattern when it comes to the foreign policy last uh, a period, last few years at least. Uh, and uh, h- how do you assess the, the developments in the region now that we have a new American administration and they would probably be prioritizing uh, balancing power against China and Russia? And um, we know that, you know, Cyprus, Eastern Mediterranean, an area where um, this shift will also be affecting um, the developments. How do you see Turkey's role changing and how it will affect, uh, will it be able to accept, let's say, uh, pressure from the either side when it comes to amending its relationship with the either side, with the EU, with the West? And uh, how can we maybe play Cyprus problem in this in this equation? How do you see it? Well, I, I would say that, you know, um, first, as uh, the relationship with the European Union has more or less frozen in the last uh, 10, day, 10 years with the uh, blockage by uh, Cyprus of the opening of uh, further chapters, and, and uh, which has you know, basically meant that uh, there was no uh, movement uh, towards integration of Turkey with the European Union. Well, Turkey has started looking elsewhere, you know, and, and Russia in particular appeared to be, uh, at least for a while, a country to which uh, to turn, where, you know, the relationship was not uh, blocked, you know, by, by the Cyprus problem. Uh, and, um, of course, I don't think that anyone in their right mind ever imagined in Turkey that the uh, that Russia could replace the European Union as a, as a source of uh, investors investment or as a as a trading partner and basically as a, as a source of, of tourists for instance you know uh, the European Union is, is uh, uh, still an indispensable partner uh, for Turkey, but Russia, at least, you know, was not asking awkward questions and, and um, was quite happy, you know, to, to see uh, Turkey distance itself from uh, the West more and more. And, and uh, uh, so that worked uh, quite well, except for a while, except that, of course, there are many areas in the neighborhood where Turkey and Russia do not see eye to eye, you know, Syria, the Caucasus, uh, uh, Libya, 
And, and uh, so the limit of what could be achieved uh, with Russia uh, was reached quite quickly. And, and so there has been you know, now, as you said, you know, there's also a new administration in the United States, uh, which takes a tougher line towards Russia and also China. Incidentally, I haven't mentioned China, but Turkey has been extremely accommodating towards China on the uh, Uyghur problem. But even that limit has been uh, reached, I think, and there are lots of people in Turkey, not just in the opposition, who are unhappy with the fact that the Turkish government or the Turkish administration of Mr. Erdogan has preferred to look the other way uh, when all these uh, horrors were taking place in, in, in China towards the Uyghurs. So uh, Turkey is now rather less accommodating than it was uh, until a few months ago. So um, China, I think, has taken uh, note that too. So, so the United States is taking a, a rather more tough line towards uh, Russia and China than was the case under Mr. Trump. And it will also need, I think, Turkey uh, in any negotiations with uh, Iran. So, you know, all the parties in the region and outside, uh, that means the United States, the European Union, uh, Russia, they all want you know, to have a, a sort of a civilized relationship with Turkey, let's say. Turkey is trying to balance all of these uh, different uh, factors, which is, of course, traditional Turkish foreign policy has always been, you know, to try to sort of balance out the different uh, interests in the region. In, until, you know, recently, of course, it had a, a very pro-Western attitude, policy. But even during the Cold War, when, when Turkey was a firmly uh, committed to NATO and, and uh, the West in general, it still maintained a civilized relationship with Russia and, and uh, has always tried you know, to avoid the region uh, being uh, the Black Sea, for instance, becoming a conflict zone between uh, Russia and, and the West. So, so I think we're now gradually uh, returning to that uh, kind of uh, uh, traditional uh, policy of Turkey. And, and I think all, all countries involved will understand that you know, cannot, Turkey cannot be only a party, a partner with one and not with the others. You know. uh, I, I don't think that anyone expects that to happen. Uh, so it will be more or less equidistant you know, from, uh, from all the parties. That's how I see the future. It's uh, very interesting. And just as a follow-up, and I think this will be also our last question, because you, you gave a general outlook. But So how do you see the world today when it comes to the balance of power, the current international order? We had everything you described about China and Russia, but at the same time we have a new administration in the United States. Uh, we have the climate um, threat and how this is influencing also the collaboration of powers uh, in the international order. So what is your outlook of uh, the balance of power today? Let's start with the United States. You know, the, uh, the, the US had a, a traditional policy of involvement with the, uh, the outside world. It saw itself as a 
as a global uh, power and it felt committed towards the defense of the European continent. And then uh, came Mr. Trump, who said that you know NATO was a waste of time. Uh, Russia, you know, under Mr. Putin, uh, was a remarkable place, and it certainly had no uh, ambitions you know, towards uh, it had no hostility towards the United States, uh, despite all sorts of evidence to the contrary. And and uh, he also liked you know uh, uh, Xi Jinping, uh, the Chinese leader, and they even liked you know the uh, North Korean leader Kim Jong Un. And and as you know very well, you know he uh, embraced the guy, you know, and so on. It was totally unimaginable and unheard of, you know, for a, an American president to do that kind of thing. And and uh, of course none of these policies brought any kind of uh, result. And and uh, under Biden, the the uh, uh, there has been a return to uh, the traditional uh, U.S. policy towards China, uh, Russia, and, and North Korea, but also the commitment towards uh, Europe and, and democracy and that kind of thing. But of course, we have seen that a change of U.S. administration, as happened when uh, Obama was replaced by, by Trump, uh, could mean a 180-degree uh, change in U.S. policy, which had never been the case before. Uh, there were, of course, changes of administration uh, since the Second World War, you know, Republican to Democrat, Democrat to Republican, and so on and so forth. But the, uh, the broad lines of U.S. policy uh, remain the same. And, and suddenly, you know, you have seen that this was no longer the case uh, when uh, Obama was replaced by Trump. Uh, there was a 180-degree turnaround. And, and again, you know, when Biden replaced Trump, again, you know, there was a 180-degree turnaround. So if you are negotiating something with the United States, you must be always, you must have at the back of your mind the question of, you know, what happens if uh, when Mr. Biden leaves and he's replaced by someone, by Trump himself, or, or someone like him, you know, what, the, what are the commitments uh, made by the present administration going to be worth in uh, three and a half years' time, for instance. You know. So, so that must be a destabilizing factor, I would say, uh, for uh, many of the uh, leaders around the world and, and uh, Europe in particular. So, so that is the unpredictability, I would say, you know, of the US now. China and Russia, of course, are much more predictable because there's no change in, in leadership. You know, they go on forever. You know, Mr. Putin, I think, uh, aims to stay until 2034 or something like that, or even later, 39. I calculated that he would be 77 or 79 by the time the present constitution uh, requires him to leave. But of course, the constitution might change again, as it has changed before. And in China, too, I think that there is no limit. China, of course, is now much more of a military power than it used to be. But I have some doubts about how successful it is going to be as an economic power. You know, it, it has had a, a, an enormous expansion in the last uh, 40 years, uh, but it has a serious uh, population problem. The population is aging. 
So China is uh, most probably going to be old before it gets rich. And, and that puts, I think, a limit uh, to, to how far uh, it can go. And as the um, uh, welfare of, of people stops increasing uh, in quite the same uh, way as it has in the past, there will be perhaps an increasing pressure from the population to have a more democratic way of government. You know, because in China you've had this uh, social contract, so to speak, that you know the uh, state was delivering um, welfare, uh, people were getting richer, and so on, and in exchange. Uh, they gave up any claims to democracy and, and instead accepted one-party rule, you know, the party dictatorship. So, so if, um, if the, this increase in welfare to which people have been accustomed to in the past uh, 40 years stops happening, maybe you know, there will be pressure on the authorities to change uh, the, the way the country is run, which would lead perhaps to um, instability in the country. And I think also the same uh, for Russia. You know? uh, when you have systems that are run you know, by, in, in, in such a way, or governments that are run uh, with, with such systems, they inherently become unstable after a while. And, and I would not you know, put it past Russia you know, to suffer that kind of fate also. Ambassador, as you rightly pointed out, especially in the West, we have experienced experienced and witnessed the um, that the institutions have been overridden, especially when it came to the US. And then we saw examples of power being concentrated in the hands of the leaders. And I think we can also comfortably say that this is also the case um, in Turkey, where um, the, the policy changes have been uh, so quick and, and occasionally um, without involvement of existing institutions. But at the end of the day, I think we, as uh, Nikosti Ankat podcasters, we always believe that, uh, especially in, in Cyprus and on this part of the world, a win-win-win situation will be good for everybody, and that should always be sought. Um, so that, um, you know, it will be good for Turkey, for Cypriot communities, for the neighbors to create some sort of a stability in a very unstable region. And this is why we have always believed that trying to go outside the existing uh, rules and, and mechanisms can be good if we are talking about, let's say, methods rather than uh, the general uh, outlook of the whole whole problem. But, um, you know, I think we are, we, are, we are going through interesting times and we really appreciated that you took your time and then um, that you agreed to be our, our guest. We are, we are very happy to host you here and um, we are hoping to be able to... Uh, sometimes with you again in, in the coming uh, time and uh, it, it, it's a real uh, real pleasure Andra Mahi. It's been a very uh, interesting discussion and a very uh, insightful perspective on your behalf and uh, it's different to look at things from a different lens as well and we hope to offer this to our listeners as well and uh, as we often say some things are often considered taboos in Cyprus and we, we fail to uh, discuss them and uh, you know we don't want to touch them because we feel that they're gonna taint us let's say but as Nikosi Ankat we believe that it is worth bringing 
other opinions as well, opinions that might we might not be in agreement with or we might uh, hear things different from what we are used to, but this is how uh, critical thinking is developed and for us this is very important. So thank you very much for giving us your perspective. Thank you very much to both of you. you know, this, was, uh, this has been quite uh, fun for me and I'd like to... Um, congratulate you, you know, both of you, for, for this uh, initiative that you have taken, because the uh, I think both communities need to have as many bridges across the, the green line as is uh, possible. So uh, I would like to um, encourage you, you know, to continue your efforts. And if you feel after a while that you want to talk to me again, I would be only too pleased to uh, join you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. In this program, we have a special guest. We plan to bring various guests in future programs, but our analysis as Nicosia and Kat will remain in the center of this podcast. Join us next week when we will discuss the informal 5 plus 1 Cyprus problem meeting that will take place in Geneva. Mm-hmm.